ocean of people in middle management where in tech they happen to be a certain demographic, a homogeneous demographic. Which is white men, but let's go ahead. Yeah. It for you. <laughs> That's fine. I'm always That's like, that you, yes. And, and they hold the key, right? They are the gatekeepers to leadership within all the companies I've ever worked for. If you believe we can change the narrative, if you believe we can change our communities, if you believe we can change the outcomes, then we can change the world. I'm Rob Richardson. Welcome to Disruption Now. Welcome to another episode of Disruption Now. Honored to have Noelle Silver, who is the founder of the AI Leadership Institute on, you know, she is a, I guess, tech evangelical. Is that what you want to No, evangelist, excuse me. Okay, Make yeah. sure I get that wrong. Either way, yeah, yeah, either way. We're tech in front, you're okay. Yeah. <laughs> a tech evangelist. I said evangelical. I don't know what I'm thinking there, but. <laughs> Anyway, she's spreading the good gospel of why tech is, is accessible to more uh, people, how we need to get the process right, how we need to have more mindful leadership and systemic change within uh, the tech and data industry. And it's really an honor to have her on. Noelle, how you doing? Wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. No, excited to have you. And, uh, you know, I, I've been inspired by your story. I can, I can tell from the research I've done uh, that you you have a lot in your head, you've come through a lot of experiences, um, and that you want to do more, you want to change more. So I am uh, encouraged by your inspiration and your view on things. And I think more people need to hear about you and hear about your journey so they can know that you know it's possible. So uh, I want to say congratulations to what you've done. And I know you have a lot of great things coming in the future. Yes, thank you so much. Um, I want to get just kind of an exploration question about, so I can, we can kind of learn you a little better. So you've had a, you've had quite the evolution in your career. Um, I'm curious that with the great knowledge you have now in tech and all of the um, challenges and barriers you've come over through the process, if you were talking to Noelle now when she was first starting off, if you can talk to your younger self, what advice would you give yourself? part one, and what advice would you ignore? Yes, I've thought about this question before, and I honestly, I'd be, I'd be a little cautious about giving myself any advice that would deter me from the path I ended up taking. Interesting, tell me why. Um, because I, I feel like I did get lots of advice that was not good um, as okay. I was going through my different career changes. Well, you can many start with that times. part of the question. What part was horrible? Yeah, <laughs> many, many, many times um, I would, I would. Uh, so I'll start from the very beginning. I never graduated from high school. I went, but I guess dropped out. But I dropped out to go to college. Like I would, I felt like I had learned all I could learn. I had some, you know. Caucasian male economics teacher tell me like, you'll never leave this town. You're not going to college. I'm not going to pass you. Like just take your lot in life. And I was like, I'm never going back to school again. And literally, that was like in the spring of that year. And by right. like within three months I had in Granite, I had good SAT scores. Like, you know, I, I did the work. I just didn't check this box. Then I went to college and had the same experience. I had people who didn't look like me, or understand the way I learned or understand the way that I acquired knowledge, dismiss me. Um, and again, I was like, that's fine. I've got enough knowledge now that I can go get a job. And one of my right. favorite kind of stories that I tell is about like how I learned tech. And I didn't go to school to be a technologist. I was in uh, aeronautics, aviation, um, which okay. is technical, but not software engineering. Sure. Um, and 
I then went to Barnes and Noble back in the day when Barnes and Noble had like the wall of books that were all yeah. computer science books. Now it's like this little teeny section. It's very sad. But back then it was a whole wall. And now I own much of that wall. It got to the point where I'd go in and be like, got it, got it, got it. Ooh, a new one. And I'd grab it and I'd take it home. And the way I learned software engineering was I'd go through these books and they were all lab books. If you remember books back then, they right, were just yep, actually, I do. Right. So I'm I guess just, I'm old enough to understand what everybody's talking about, what you're talking about. Right. Go ahead. <laughs> I know some of you are like, what? I'm not old, but I'm old enough to know your conversation. And, been through, right. yes. and, and this was like Y2K. So there was a bit of a perfect storm where I was leaving college. I wanted to do something in tech. I did get that advice from people in school. So they did say like text the place to be. I didn't realize that they didn't actually mean necessarily for me, me, right. <laughs> like Hispanic, you know, female Noel, but I took that anyway. I learned. And back then in Y2K, they needed people just like we need people today in data. Um, like we're willing to teach you, right? As long as you can show aptitude, passion, perseverance, people are willing to hire you on that opportunity today in data, just like we did on sure. Java developers back then. So that's what I did. I learned in a book and I interviewed online and wow. I got my first job teaching actually at IBM, teaching object-oriented programming. And so that was like the beginning, but the entire time people told me I wasn't technical enough to do it. I wasn't yeah. capable. It wasn't the right place for me. I should probably stay in computer or in uh, customer service. Like nonstop. The advice was like, right. stay in your lane. And that advice has continued every step of the way till this very day. Oh, yes. Yeah. People, people want to put you in their boxes, right? I told you offline and many people heard my story about how people wanted to put me in the same box. You're, you're, you know, you're going to, you're never going to be able to go to college. Why are you going to engineering? You're going to you're going to fail. I think one of the most important lessons is to not allow other people to feed you that garbage and figure out. And it's but it's it's hard, right? When when the majority of people around you have a narrative, your brain tends to wire that way. So right, and there's remember, not a lot of what us. pushed you. Go ahead. Well, there's just not a lot of people like us back then. Like 20 years ago, there was no, no. one doing podcasts that looked like me that I could be like, oh. Okay, like I literally thought I was alone. <laughs> like I was yeah. the only one on these teams. Um, or and, and this is true, I would always maybe have like an African-American male. And so it would be me and that person. But we were like the tokens and that was it. And hiring stopped for that demographic. Yep, we, we've taken, we've checked the box. We got, right. you see, like our, our inclusion is those two. Look, you want to tell us yeah. about issues we of diversity? Like double with Noel, you know? Yeah, like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah it, it was really, and I just think we were, I don't know, I call us the suck it up generation. Like I was just so interested in being successful and I yeah. just sucked it up. I didn't stand up and go, this is ridiculous. I shouldn't have to work twice as hard, three times as hard to get the same recognition as my peers. Yeah. Um, but I did anyway. And now it's almost a bad habit right now. When I go into a situation, I over prepare, yeah. I over study so that I'm never caught where someone's like asking me a question that my you know, peer knows and I don't. Right. So I'm never caught flat footed, which is good. It's a I guess as an entrepreneur, it's an excellent skill to have, yeah, it, but it's sad and unnecessary. And it's, it's funny to interrupt you. Uh, we yeah. had this conversation about the narrative that, you know, black people, people of color say, what do you have to work twice as hard to get half as much? I don't have a problem with the twice as hard. I have a problem with the expectation of half as much. So the issue is like, okay, maybe we, if we have the mindset where we have to work hard, that's fine. But then our mindset needs to be like white people's are. They're like, you know, if I work hard, I expect to get 
That's right. Double. And I think changing the expectation of, and we got to change the expectation of ourselves and we got to change the expectation of the greater society who thinks like, okay, well, they're the exception. And they, and they, they kind of know that when they get here, you're going to work twice as hard because to be a person of color, it shouldn't be this way, but to be a person of color, you know that you're an overperformer. You need to pay and appreciate and reward and incentivize and have a culture that uh, makes sure that those that, that, that people like that want to stay and you empower them to want to stay, not to say twice as hard and expect half as much and your organization gives half as much like that's OK. Like, no, it's not OK. You have to suck it up and you went here. Uh, closer than I thought you would. So uh, I'm going to come back to your to your journey at some point, but let's let's go here while you're here. You know, you, you talked about experiences that you had where you would you're kind of a disruptor, rather. And I don't think your goal is to go out and disrupt, but your goal, from what I tell, is to try to improve things. But you try to improve things. Here's the challenge: you try to improve things which require change, which is inherently disruptive. And people, from what I can gain from my research of you. They then take that on as a threat, and then you get these kind of microaggressions. What I think you called wing clipping. Can you yes. can you give some examples of what that looked like, and then how you dealt with those situations? Yes, and unfortunately, like I feel, I've now been able to more accurately attribute this wing clipping to kind of middle management. Right? There's this okay. ocean of people in middle management. Where in tech, they happen to be a certain demographic, a homogeneous demographic. Which is white men, but let's go ahead. Yeah. I'll say it for you. <laughs> That's fine. I'm always like, you, yes. And and they hold the keys, right? They Correct. are the gatekeepers to leadership within all the companies I've ever worked for. And my challenge has always been, I go in and I am very transparent, especially today about my ambition. Like I'm like, my, my, go- my goal here is not to do the job you are hiring me to do, but to show you that I can do that and manage the team that I'm currently doing that for and manage teams of those teams. Like I give them the lay of my future ideation of what I want to do for that company in the interview, because I don't want there to be any confusion because I've learned that lesson. And even when I do that, I have the conversation and I very recently had this conversation where they sit me down and they say, I hired you to do this job. Just do that job. I don't need you to be a leader. I don't need you to represent or speak or say when you see something. Mm. I don't need you to say something every time you see something. Mm. And it and it shocks me because I keep searching for like the perfect kind of company that has a culture that it would accept someone like me, right? right? Why wouldn't you want someone who's ambitious and wants to like serve people and create a product that the users need and love? Why wouldn't you want to help that person do more right. as opposed right. to be like, be quiet, sit down, don't do any more podcasts, stop blogging. What? Like nothing I'm saying is offensive. I mean, I guess you could perceive it as such, but, but it's happened continuously. And unfortunately I've actually had people of all types come to me and say, Oh my gosh, I've had this conversation, right? Not just women in tech, which is why I tend to focus, but specifically like African-American men in tech that happen to be the one engineer. I, I have a friend of mine, who is a doctorate, he did his doctorate on African-American engineers and how it's very similar to what we just said, how difficult that road is, but how much worse it is when you do do twice the work or four times the work. Yep. And you're actually told like, that's fine. Good. Glad you did it. But it doesn't actually matter because I don't need you to do that work. Right. But my golden boy who just got hired, right? 
passes me in a promotion within six months when I've been here three years. Like those are the, that's why it's wing clipping because some people don't have their wings clipped. Well, give me some example. Like so I understand, I understand what you mean. Yeah. Uh, to, the, to the extent that you're comfortable, I mean, talk about a situation how it played out and how you, if if Noel was in charge of said corporation, yes, how should it go? Yeah. In order, in order to actually create the culture that you want, because it's one, because th- we can, we can, we can have these ideals. I can say, you know, uh, tech like Hollywood paints this picture of being this ideal place where all oh, everybody's included, and we are so high, high and mighty, and open minded, and liberal and progressive, and choose the adjective you want to choose. But when you look at the numbers, they don't look different from anybody else, right. except the language. Sounds different, but the results look the same. I know I'm making generalizations, but I think the facts back up what I'm saying. Yeah, absolutely. And I will give you a very specific example around hiring. And I have always been in position to build teams where I've gone. So that has been wonderful because I do have a different lens. However, every time I go to build a team, and most recently, I want to build a team. And I say that I'm looking for a symphony in this team, right? When I look at the Zoom call today, I want to see... Colors, shapes, sizes, introverts, extroverts, people who learn differently, people with ADHD, people who maybe are hard of hearing, who have uh, special physical disabilities or needs, right? If they have the chops, I want them to represent, especially as someone building data science and AI solutions, I want to make sure that my constituents, the entire world is my constituents when I build an, an artificial intelligence machine learning model. Right. So I need to make sure that my engineers are empathetic to those those perspectives. Um, and I will tell you that the conversation has been, in, and even I have people who would be considered diverse recruiters, right? African-American recruiters. And they, to- they say the same thing to right. me, which is, I can get you a person who is qualified and you should take the person who is most qualified. Doesn't matter what color they are. Oh my God. Right. And it's the it's the the story we've heard before. Like, of course, all developers matter. And of course, all people with the skills worked hard to get those skills. But the reality is, is that and I know this from a very specific situation. I walked into a company, a media company, and there was someone there who had been there 12 years, had led teams, but never got promoted to leadership, just sat there taking it. Sucking it up, yeah. right? While someone comes in six years later and is moving up the ranks and eventually becomes this person's director. And people don't understand that when I'm now recruiting for someone like this person who's got 12 years of seniority leading right. engineering teams, he'll never show up on my radar because I'm looking for a director and he never got a director promotion. Yeah. So I'm trying to teach CEOs now sure, like how yeah. For different things. Well, the thought, and, uh, the, yeah, because you have to, if you want to be, if you want to include, you have to be intentional about how you do it and to know that if you're looking for inclusion to look like it's always look, it's not going to look that way. So you have to look for, search for talent. It's funny. I mean, search for how you would your networking, your friends to say you see potential in these people. You see, you can, and view them for the potential that they have. Uh, but that's certainly not done. And I can, you know, some, a point that I really, really agree with you on. Uh, I've talked about this before. Uh, we've talked about the diversity and inclusion. 
whatever you want to call it, the, the diversity and inclusion tokenism, the diversity and inclusion, uh, you know, the, the check the box approach where there's someone there, but they're there to not always true, but generally this tends to be true that the, that the DNI person has no power, yeah. no position, no and budget, no, no budget or the budget is very little. They get to throw a really, you know, one party a year and they get to say, put out a really nice report and, 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 and make it look like they've done nothing, but nothing's really changed. I mean, how do we go about like moving diversity and inclusion from just a talking point and tokenism to actual reality within these institutions? And you talked about it with hiring, but how do we put it into the DNA of decision making when it comes to the corporations, and more importantly, this is the broader part of the question: How do we do it in the, and when we're incorporating technology, which has a whole bunch of impact, we can go through? Yes, yeah, so I am a big fan of this term, inclusive engineering, and it hiring is part of that, building the engineering teams, but also in actually like in the teams themselves, and in all of the stages of developing a piece of software. It's called the software development lifecycle. And understanding, so I'm in AI, I'm in data. So understanding what it means to collect, for example, diverse data for a problem, what it means to then get testers, right? Beta testers that represent a diverse collection of people. So there's this whole concept of like changing the DNA of our engineering teams. It starts with hiring, but then I found out it really doesn't, it actually starts in education. Because yeah. a lot of these people, yeah. just like you and I, we're actually told this isn't a path for you, right. right? Like you grew up in this city. Oh, no, no, no. This city, you don't go, you go to vocational school, right? Yep. You can become, you know, you can work at a mechanic. It doesn't matter what, how smart you are or what you got on your SATs. <laughs> they might not even take the SATs in some of these communities. Um, and so I think a lot of it was me realizing hiring is part. And then once you're in a team, creating a leadership organization that recognizes this diversity and get, empowers those individual engineers to pull the chain on the train and stop something from happening. Right, right now, there's a lot of people like me, and, and actually there was just recently a Facebook article or an article about someone at Facebook who was on an, an engineering team and uncovered bad things happening, right? Bad right. decisions that were being made, not on purpose, not intentional, of course, but that were happening because everyone asking the question were all the same and therefore agreed with each other. No, there were no dissenting opinions. And the only dissenting opinion, which was hers, ended up getting basically she was moved out of that. Mar marginalized. Yeah. Moved out of the company. Moved and out so of the company. How do we like that's what there's kind of both sides. Like, how do we make sure we're using the pipeline with people that will diversify the engineering teams themselves? But that doesn't even matter if we don't have a leadership team that empowers their ideas because they will be the lone voice of reason many, many times. And today, that's what they call us. You know, oh, you're just a, you know, emotional Hispanic or you're just. Of, a, of course, emotional. Yeah. Yeah. Like they can write off our rational, our rational you know, perspective can be written off because we're an anomaly. And yes. that, I think, is the bridge we need to tip. Right. We need more people like me, like you in leadership roles where we control the hiring and we control the policies that those companies. Yeah. And you, um, you just you discussed this a lot about mindful leadership and what that looks like and, and why it's impactful. Uh, if I can remember some of your points, the reason why people people some recognize the need to have 
uh, diverse talent. Some recognize the need to have a process that is not so short-term results, but it's more about making sure we go through the process, test test things out a little better. One example I can think of clearly, we discussed when you know Microsoft created the racist bot. I mean, that was a exam. It wasn't intentional, but you know, when you don't have people and ask obvious questions, you're gathering stuff from data from Twitter. Yeah, Twitter. Have you seen what goes on on Twitter? I mean, it's it's it's, it's really easy to figure out. People would have told you, like, you might want to think about this and that. But what is what does mindful leadership look like if someone if we wanted to do that, uh, making sure that our culture does that? Because I, I do believe you said you worked with some great CEOs. The issue is the cult. It didn't something didn't reach between the CEO's vision and what actually gets implemented here at the manager level. Is that is that am I right on saying that? That's right. And that's that middle management that I've uncovered is really kind of, and. I've had one person say something that kind of broke my heart, which was there's an entire generation of people who have to retire or die or leave mm. in order for some of these problems we're trying to solve to be solved because mm. they sit in positions of power and they are literally the like Satya Nadella says amazing things for Microsoft. Right. I'm so on board. I saw a business week cover. He had a halo like he's the savior. However, the middle management of Microsoft, it's very difficult for what he's saying to show up in an engineering team. Right. Because there's A, a bunch of layers, but also because the people in the middle have been there longer than Satya. Yeah. Embody values that are different than that new leadership team. And, and those values, those old values, my guess would be, Noel, and then finish, those old values are the ones that are actually reinforced and incentivized versus the more aspirational ones, the longer term, it's probably like, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. And all that. But what, what are we doing this quarter? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All that. But what did you bring? What did you bring in this week? I mean, is that is that wrong? That's right. And, and I mean, someone uh, recently wrote an article about it and they called them the untouchables because they are this kind of, you know, I don't know, layer within the organization. Yeah. And they've been there longer than most of the new leadership coming in. They're like untouchable. They they will stay and they will influence decisions right. just like that. And it's though when it gets to a certain point, you have a bunch of minority leaders rising through the ranks, awesome, saying the right things, calling out bad behavior, and then it gets to this literal glass ceiling. And it of, stops. Yeah, and they're and like, I, thank I you. I still blame. That. Right, I still blame that on leadership, though. I'll tell you. I'll tell you why. Because I think the greatest thing a leader can do is get real feedback to know when they have spinach in their teeth. And yeah. so I try to encourage my team to like, say, what did exactly look at? Yeah. Is it tell me like, I know I look stupid. Like I know I want you to feel encouraged to say when I did something stupid and this and this unwillingness to be vulnerable as leaders, as leaders is really, I think, hurting leaders uh, is hurting organizations and institutions and frankly, countries. Uh, and, I'll, and I'll say that. I don't want to accept the fact that that people we have to wait for people to retire. I believe in disruption. I and, agree. Yeah. <laughs> well, if anything, it fired me up. <laughs> yeah, I'm like we have to. I believe my my definition of innovation is different from most. I believe I believe innovation is a rebellion against the status quo. It's willing to it's it's those who who are willing to fight for a better for a better future, and they're willing to take some risks to do so. And so I think we have to make these organizations, institutions, and sometimes our country understand the consequences of not being inclusive. Uh, you know, if you look at what happened in this country, particularly in the South, and I want to bring it back to this moment and ask you a question here, but if you look at what happened in this country, um, you know, pre 
the civil rights movement, uh, of course, during slavery, the South, what people don't often make this argument, the South did worse economically because of how they treated, obviously, Black people at that point in our country, because they had a repressive, non-inclusive economy, the economy did not thrive. They were holding on to an old way of thinking and preventing innovation, preventing economic growth. Go back and look at the numbers from 18, whatever, 1880 to 1950, the South trails there. And the reason for that is how they treated black and brown people. And that prevented that prevented white people, too, from from doing well. So I think the message here is that we have to figure out a way to win the war of idea and ideals and be more. I think we have to be more aggressive about it and understand that this is this is not just about including, which is very important, including African-Americans, people of color, women. But it's also about making sure our nation can be prosperous. The two are together. That's my thought. Yeah, I definitely I agree. And I, I think part of it that's why I'm so passionate about like this concept of mindful leadership is like elevate when you see something, say something is kind of yeah. the, the core, but like, how do we elevate the voices of people who already know that bad things are happening? And even today I have sat in rooms where there was openly racist behavior mm-hmm. and the person who was being offended didn't say anything. Mm-hmm. And the person who was offending was kind of arrogant about the fact that they could do it. Like I'm, this is 2020, like I don't understand. So that's why now I'm like, maybe it's just, do I just need to say out loud, you're not alone, like you will not. That was one thing that I did feel at like other companies, Amazon, Microsoft, when I was in these moments where I was feeling kind of being, I was discriminated against, I guess. Yeah, I'm sure you were. I would say, I would say to myself like, Maybe this is me. Maybe I misunderstood, right? Like, which is what we all do yeah, in these course. moments where our value is being questioned. Yeah. And even though I am a rock star, like I had six hundred million in revenue that I had pushed, I had an award, like I had data. Yeah. And even with that data, I left thinking, this must be me. Like no one, I mean, no one else is doing. No one else has this problem. No one else is getting fired unfairly. Right. No one else is, you know, like I don't see. And a lot of it's because there's this ridiculous shame associated with it. So when we are, when we're the one who's being offended, we crawl into the hole. Yes. We're the one who go, you know, not so much, I, at least I'm hopeful, less now. I see more and more people speaking up now. Yeah. I, I almost see that horrible thing that happened in the 90s where we all spoke up for a while and then we started just, you know, I can already yeah. see it now from the middle of the summer. We're starting to sit back and go. Oh, yeah, yeah. Now we're getting a little tired of this. We said Black Lives Matter. What else do you want us to do? Exactly. Can we, can we like, move on. Like, can you please stop making us feel this way? And Yes. And, be- and you get tired of fighting, which is where I've been. You do. I mean, I'm already t- I, Look, I'm a fighter and I'm tired right now. I know. <laughs> so, like, it's. Uh, it's and, and I just so thought this of- is why, like, how do this is the problem we have to solve because people, and especially I think Hispanic and, you know, Black and Brown people are. They're not going to put up with that forever. And eventually they'll just be like, you know what? I'm out. And that's what like reboot representation was a report done by the Gates Foundation. Yes. And they found that we're doing a good job getting people into jobs. We're doing a horrible job keeping them because people will just not put up with it, which is good, but it's bad because it doesn't solve our problem. It's just like Amazon and um, Facebook. Was it Facebook? No, Amazon and IBM giving up on facial recognition. 
because it because it was too hard to actually solve the problem of making sure yes. you don't that you can identify black people and not white and just white men. Can we just like make that uh, like happen as opposed to be like, oh, it's broken. We're not, we're just not going to fix it. Right. You know, it's the same thing. Like, are we going to just not fix it then and well, just I, call it? I think it's it's and I want to talk to you about this moment right now in the United States of America. Uh, obviously, we we just got done with the the most contentious election of our lifetime. And we've had, and that's saying a lot because there's been a lot of contentious elections in our lifetime. We've had plenty of them, right? N nothing quite like this one. Uh, nothing quite like this moment uh, of, of, of anger with, uh, you know, black and brown people, people that are allies of black and brown people, people that say they are some. Um, and so we've seen, I haven't seen a moment like this. I've never had more conversations outside my race or outside of person of color discussing, I, I never had more conversations about that, more, uh, I guess, outreach. I think some of it's genuine. I think some of it maybe is not, but I've never seen more attention put to the issue of equity and equality than I have at this moment in my lifetime. Um, but as you said, I, I heard in another podcast, some people deal with it. And I think uh, out of just complete anger, which is understandable. I mean, and I and and people see you dealing with it. And if you don't deal with it in the same way, it's like, are you not really for the cause? I went through I, I would just I, I had the same. I'll let you finish. I just had this. I was on the board of trustees of the University of Cincinnati. I became chairman of the board and I have a whole lot of stories. But one major issue we dealt with was uh, one of one of the officers of the university at that time. Like right when I became chair shoots an unarmed black man unjustifiably. And so and I had to do a whole, whole lot of stuff. But. Um, when I think about what I had to go through in that moment, how many times I had to, and I, we did create change. Like we we pushed out some of the, the, the structure of those officers, changed the infrastructure, did a lot of stuff. But, you know, I had to deal internally with uh, a board that was all conservative, uh, all very, just not used to dealing with issues like this and would say a lot of offensive things. And I had to figure out how to have that conversation, but I had it directly with them to make them understand it. And then I had to challenge of dealing with members of my own community that assumed because I didn't get up and put a put my fist up in the middle of the meeting and stand on the table that I wasn't fighting hard for black people or inclusion or equity when I spent my entire career doing that. And so I do think it's important and I want to get your thoughts about how we should go about viewing systemic change in this moment and understanding that there's a broad perspective and approach to doing that. Yeah, I think this is such an important point because I've also been in that situation. I am not one, I'm not an aggressive type of fighter. Like I, I actually fight. am, and I still got called out, but go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> it was, yeah, exactly. I was pretty aggressive. I was like, <laughs> so. But I'm not. And, and so I definitely have people who are confused or who are like um, offended at the fact that I'm not angrier about what's happening or that I'm not taking more action when actually you know, I, I think part of it is having empathy for the ways that people can be impactful and systemic change is not the, it's not the riot that we had that was good and momentous and created immense momentum, but systemic change is decades in the making. Correct. Right? And the work I've been doing my entire career since the nineties is all I'm at least in my mind thinking those things are what are contributing to the changes that I'm seeing, that I am encouraging others to think and act the way I do, that I'm sharing with them the challenges, increasing awareness so that when somebody's in a room, 
like it, it all comes down to another like mindful leadership trait is self-awareness. Like yeah. just knowing that into, when you get that gut feeling, it's not that you ate something bad for lunch, like something bad is happening and you need to say something. And right. I've just watched too many people like judge either the person who was trying to implement systemic change, but not in a mechanism or way that they felt would be more effective. And I actually am like both and like, bring it on. Both if you and. Want to go and like raise your fist and yell and protest. Good. I'm going to go. All right. I'm going to quit my cushy executive job and go work for a startup. That's changing education, right? Like that is my level of impact. Yes. But everybody's level of impact is valuable. And that's one thing. I mean, that's, the actual, the mission of inclusion. So we have right. to be careful not to tip to the side of the oppressor. Yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> we have, judgment of each other. as long as our North star, this is not always the case. There are some people I will call out if they're defending things that are clearly wrong. I think that's different than what we're saying. But if our North star is about expanding access and opportunities, and you've seen that, we've, that people have done that, I think you have to give them a benefit of the doubt. When they say something that might not agree with everything you say, particularly on Twitter. Like it's easy at every moment people judge something. You say one statement and people don't look at the the whole record of things you've done. It might be one statement in one context that they're not viewing in the full context. And people have this now emotional reaction. But I think, and I'm going to talk, I think there's a, there's also part of a reason for that. I think it's part of how social media is doing things is why we also need a space, but I'll talk about that in a minute. But I, but I do think that is that is what's going on. And people have to realize that there are, I look at this as three kind of basic layers, I'll say four actually have changed. One is pr protest is a part of the process, right? Yeah, exactly. I'm not doubting protest. Protest is absolutely necessary. It's necessary to bring attention. Then that has to follow some type of policy, right? And and so that and that and that, that's also a longer process. But if you have the protest doesn't connect to policy, nothing happens. The third part is there actually has to be power. Like you need power to do any of this stuff. And, and there is a Automatic criticism, I think, of of people uh, when you when you get to be in positions of power, and it's unfortunately seen as an anomaly because it is in, in America. When you see black and brown people in positions of influence, and when people and don't see instant change across the board, they assume the worst from any leader that is in those positions. And until you've held one of those positions and, and, and leading a, a large institution and fighting hard, again, I'm a hard fighter, but I'm also a strategic fighter. Like it, if you just fight one way, you're not going to be an effective fighter. Yeah. Right. So yeah. it is hard when you're in these positions of power and leadership. And I think there has to be, and this is why, you know, we're working on why, why we're going to create the app and why we're doing and finishing the app. There has to be an understanding of the uh, relationship to power and how to actually move it and how we do that as a collective whole because there's not a full enough appreciation. I think once we get to that, that's how we have to, I think, have the disruptive change. That's how I kind of, that's how I kind of feel about it for this moment. But You know, I'll, tell, I'll share with you a very, a shocking thing that happened as I moved into more and more senior roles. I moved into an executive role and in this role, I was like, I am the leader that I always wanted. Right. And, and so in my mind, I'm like, I'm going to do so much. I'm going to support. I'm going to listen. I'm going to implement. And what ended up happening in the first few weeks of my tenure in this position is that literally, like, you know, we all have these channels, Slack, Teams, whatever. Sure. I start joining the channels that I've, which in my, as an independent contributor, I realize a lot of ideas come from, right? So the people of color channel and the 
um, you know, Latin X channels and all this. So as an executive, I can go in and hear and then implement, like I am there to serve. Right. And immediately I was cut out of those organizations. <laughs> like They were like, you can't play here because you, you're an executive and therefore the enemy. And so to your point around, like, it's one thing to have power, but it has to be holistic. Like you have to, as the person being helped, know when someone comes in, that's going yep. to serve you and help you and then give them a chance. Cause it was ex- like, you just were talking about, it was not only difficult, but it was extremely lonely. It is very lonely. As soon as you get cut off from the people that you have like embraced as your family up until the point where you become a leader to then be alone and then worse in the den of wolves, right? Of people who don't think what you say is valuable that, you know, like I'm now in this executive room, I am all by myself and my crew has gone, oh, you're not one of us anymore. Yeah. (gasps) I cried. I literally cried at work since like my first day on the job at IBM. And I was, you know, had a traumatic experience with some white men, but I cried as a grown woman going like, Oh, I wouldn't want to be an executive either. I wouldn't want to be here by myself. I, again, of course, like took a deep breath, practiced some, you know, centering exercises and was like, no, I'm going to, I'm going to fix this. I ultimately left that role because I could not like power. It's one thing to be given power, as you know, with the diversity officers, right? You get given a perception of power. So it's one thing to be given power, but it's another to even have power that you are not like your constituencies won't let you help them with. Yes. And so it's kind of both sides. And I just was shocked when that happened. I wasn't Absol- prepared for that. The side exists. And, I, and being an effective leader requires the leader to be vulnerable. But then it also requires those who are the stakeholders to be receptive to being vulnerable because we know where that programming comes from. That programming comes from the greater construct that tells us we can't trust each other. And we selected this person because they are different from you. No, Noel is not different in terms of being more special than any other Hispanic or person of color or black person. Neither is Rob Richardson. And changing that narrative within ourselves and within our brains and then trusting each other because you can't get what, what this comes down to, I believe, is having trust to to not subscribe the worst to ourselves when we get to these positions of power. I mean, I mean, I mean, I'm sure Obama went through it. I'm sure that's part of his struggle. He went through as well. I mean, I'm not saying the man was perfect, but he was, I think he was, I think he's a pretty good president. I think he go, he went through a lot that we can't even imagine. I mean, if you think all the microaggressions and things he had to hold in, he had to be the most calm black man to ever exist on the planet earth. Cause I'm like, some stuff that he put up with is, some stuff I couldn't put up with, but how, what do you advise people? Like you've been through these, you're, you're, you are very talented and there are other talented people out there, but I think we need to say you have worked hard. You are talented. And yet, and yet you've had these setbacks, struggles. What do you say to people as they say, well, if she's had those setbacks and struggles, how can I continue to achieve or, or, or say another way, how, how have these lessons or setbacks helped you develop and what could you say that's encouraging to people that's to someone right now that may be struggling with the moment that with, with the type of moments that you've had in your career? Yeah. And, and I think it's true, probably professionally and personally, like one thing that I've uncovered and we all probably at some point, if we are self-aware, realize 
that these things, it's the circle of life, if you will, or seasons, right? I've realized that in my life, there are, there has been multiple winters. And just like in the real life, some winters have been horrific, more snow than I can handle. And (laughs) some have not been like, I barely noticed they were winter in contrast, (laughs) but they are all cycles. Um, And so I've had both personally and professionally these, I mean, I kind of always say to the universe, I'm like, all right, like, I feel like it's disproportionately fallen in my direction. <laughs> um, I, I could use a little bit of a break. Um, and so as part of that, though, I've now come to realize that these challenges, COVID, 2020 in general, a presidency, like all these things that we would consider or take on as like a narrative for us, it's really, that's not the story, right? The story is in our resilience, is in our recovery. I always, I kind of now in the last 10 years, time my recovery against a winner, right? Like how soon can I get excited for spring? A lot of us do this like naturally, right? Right. We know the day it goes above 40, especially if you're from the Northeast or New England, you're like, spring is coming. You put your convertible top down. It's 42 degrees, but you right. know, is coming. And so now I've attributed that to my professional career where, yeah, bad things have happened. And probably as a Hispanic female moving up the ranks in leadership, it's disproportionately bad. I've also been given because the good news is, is people are more now, you mentioned this earlier, more likely than ever to give me a chance, more likely than ever to make room for me at the table or not like scoop me out when I sit down. And there's huge opportunity. The fact that we can create a platform, the fact that you have a platform, right? We couldn't do that. No, we couldn't. No, nope. right? like, we, we couldn't, really, we couldn't even do it 10 years ago. Really? Not really. That's right. That's right. We can get on MSNBC and now we can build a channel that actually has more engagement than some of these larger networks yes. for less money. And so yes. that's why I created this, this organization called Lovefluencers, which is all about empathetic social influence. And it really is about people like me, like you, like how do we just give people the tools to let their voice be known? Mm. Because I think that's the difference is that winters are going to keep coming. Bad things are going to keep happening. Guaranteed. But you now have like, you can plant bulbs earlier. The sooner you know that, oh, this is winter and you can step back from the pain of that situation. The saddest thing that I hear is when someone, when I introduce myself to them, the first thing they say is like, oh yeah, I got divorced at X or my husband left me or this, and I, or I'm a single parent. And they're defined by this thing that they consider. They're defined by, a, by a struggle. Yeah. And so I encourage people, I'm like, that's a great story, but that's not where it starts and that's not where it ends, right? That is the hero's journey. That's like in the middle. You started right. with a dream. You now got the classic you know, confrontation of like, are you serious about this? Because bad things are going to try and knock you down, push you in the dirt. But it's the next thing you do. It's the bulbs you plant. It's the next thing you do that makes the difference. And so the more that I can tell people, like, as bad as it is. And I, again, if you go and look at some of the um, sessions that I've done and my YouTube videos, you'll see like some really, or TikTok videos, really bad crap. But I can't let that define me. There were days I didn't want to get out of bed where I was like, this is ridiculous. I have four kids. I'm by myself. My dad lives with me. Everyone's yelling at me at the same time. And I'm trying to keep a full-time job. And there's a pandemic. It's enough to just lay you down. Yeah, that's a lot. That's a lot. Yeah, I agree. That's a lot. So often I cry over my dishes and I'm like, what am I going to do? How is this going to work out? But it is in those moments that I'm like, 
what seed can I plant? So what I do now is every single morning, I have a moleskin little notebook and I write down three goals, a personal one, a professional one, and it's three years from now. So I see myself three years from now and I write these statements as if they were true today. Amen. You plant the seed and you plant it, plant it, plant the seed. That's right. And it starts in the mind. It does. And then you surprised what like this conversation we're having, right? These things start to pop up. Um, It's called like your reticular activation system, right? Your mind starts looking for things that ratify and support these statements that you're saying every day. Yep. And that's how the world works. And so the more people I can encourage to like tell your story, but then set your goals. What do you want as yes. a result of this? Don't be defined by your circumstances in front of you. That's, that's, that's right. That's it. I mean, that's your story and it makes a great story. Like the horribleness that you're in right now will make a great story when you're out of it. Like you're going to look back and be like, Oh my gosh, listen to what happened to me. Like, and people will be inspired by it. Yeah, but you you have to plant those seeds and move forward. That's awesome. That's your your life. One of my questions you got to were your life hacks, your routines to keep you grounded, and because that's a, you 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 deal with a lot, right? I mean, the fact that four kids and your dad is there that that and you are holding down the fort. First of all, wow, uh, that's a and you and you. But but most importantly, you've been able to keep a positive perspective and keep faith in the future despite 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 the current circumstances in front of you. So. Uh, I mean, that, that that's awesome. Oh, you know, what do you think um, in terms of your career pivot? I know you your, your largest pivot seemed to be when you went uh, when you left NPR. Is that, is that right? Your largest pivot in your career? Uh, I would say that it came at a time when I was willing to speak the loudest about what had happened. Right. But I would say that it's probably the same pivot I made when I left Amazon. It was the same Tell me why those, tell me why those, tell me the similarities between the two, why you made the pivot and what you learned from that, from those pivots. Yeah. So at, when I was at Amazon, I did a bunch of things and some of it were like the golden age of the things I loved to do. You you created voice. Just so I I didn't say this before. You were one of the creators, the beginning founders of creating Alexa and voice, teaching Alexa how to do all that. You yes. can thank Noel Silver for all mo, a lot. Yes, of that. I'm like the right. mother of like seven or eight champions. Like they heard me speak about Alexa first, and then their journey started. I mean, I and I that was like like I said the golden years. I was like I love this role. Now there were two other people on the team that were white and male, and they did not live in Seattle. And I said to my family, "We don't have to live here because no one else lives here, so we're going to go home." And when I presented that option to my leadership, they were like, sorry, if you want to be an evangelist, you have to stay here. And I was like, that doesn't seem to make sense because no one else is here. Um, And I'm exceptionally good at this. Like I'm exceptional at this. So it's not like I'm just like a middle of the bell curve, right? I am overperforming. And this is where I was like, oh, (laughs) this is where the, like the glass ceiling or the, systemic differences where we're like, why? The wing, the wing that was the beginning of the end, right? And so I ended up moving anyway. I took a new job on the other side of the country so I could be closer to my family. Um, and it was a good move at the time, but I moved away from evangelism, which is where my heart and soul is. Oh, that, uh, and I moved tough. into project management, which anyone will tell you, like, I can do it and I'm actually good at it, but I don't really love it. I love building other project managers. <laughs> But I don't love the work the way I do evangelism. And so it's that was like the beginning of the end. And I was pregnant. So, oh, and get this, like as the universe would have it, in that move, the movers 
somehow got lost in the mountains and the axle burned up and torched all of our belongings. You're kidding. So now I'm in a new place with wow. no stuff and nine months pregnant. <laughs> wow, that's a lot. Ooh. Yep. So I get a new job. I'm now working in a job I'm not super passionate about as a result, which you should know this if you're a hiring manager out there, right? People aren't engaged. It's probably because they're not doing something they love or they don't feel like they have the power to do things that they are there to do. And I felt both. And I started to feel the resistance of my leadership team. And they ultimately gave me the wing clipping conversation. Stop doing the evangelism work, even if it's on the side, even if it's in your spare time and focus on the lane we put you in. Yeah, I would hate that. Like it was a kiss of death. Um, And then I started to go around to other organizations at Amazon. It's a huge company. I remember Jeff Bezos saying early in my employment there, you never have to leave Amazon because if you don't get along with your current team, you can find another one because we hire you for you, not for the functional role. So I took him on his word. I started going around. I got a verbal offer from a team and my Caucasian female manager went to that team and encouraged them. And here's how they did it, which is what I am very passionate about expressing to people that this happens. She didn't say, here's the data supporting like poor performance because there was none. She didn't say, here's the performance plan she's been on because I noticed that she was not performing because there was none. What she said was, oh, well, I'm not really sure that's a good fit for your Yeah, I knew a cultural fit. Yep. Yeah, not, I mean, I can't really put my finger on it, but there's something just not right there. And he called me shaking. His voice was shaking and he called me and he was like, I have to rescind my my offer. Mm. And I quit <laughs> um, because I realized that one person has the power. And that happened at Microsoft too. I had someone fire me unfairly, but right. because they had the power, a white person had the power to write that check and my career had to cash it. And I was like, this is so messed up yeah. because and I'm a performer. What yeah. happens to these people that are just good at their job? Well, what happens right. is the, the, the problem is you're a performer, but you're a disruptor. Yeah. Uh, I say that in a good way. Yes. And I, so I do make are, people uncomfortable. On yeah, you do. And you are like, I, I, I would not be good in a corporation. I, I've never, I, I, the one job I did that I absolutely hated, I, I came out of law school and worked for a corporate law firm. It was an awful fit for both of us. It, it doesn't fit. It doesn't fit me. Right. Yeah. So I, it's, I'm, a, I'm an evangelist as well. I'm an evangelist yeah. about empowering people around not only technology, but just empowerment and, and changing the infrastructure to make sure more people have opportunities. So I didn't fit within a structure that, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but people come down, they get they get something from a corporation, they say, figure no, out- No, I'm definitely that to. square peg round. Right. I'm not that person, right? And you and you just have to realize that, you know, it's not, it's 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 them and you. Yeah. And that's also not a bad thing. It's that's not right. That's not a bad thing because they were right to say you don't culturally fit and it's their loss because they're not, open, right. they're not open enough to be disruptive, like we ought to have, uh, I think Malcolm Gladwell described the best environments are ones that have constructive rivalries, one that people can go and have the safety to say, this is how it can be done better. I hear I hear, it used to be like that at Apple. I'm not sure if it is. I, I, I know from Microsoft, from Microsoft uh, things changed after Bill Gates left and Steve Ballmer took over. I know he has a very you know, fixed square point of view. If you just look at how he discusses things, it's very yeah. clear. And I think that is the single biggest problem in this country, in the world right now, leadership being so finite, so 
limited in their perspective that they only see next quarter instead of what's best long term. They only see what's next. They can't see what's actually best for the institution and have a long term vision. I believe that's the central issue. I mean, I know it sounds vague, but that's what's going on in this country. And that's why I think it's so important what we're doing with technology. A couple of things I want to talk about and get some rapid questions. Um, tech, there's some technology in terms of AI that's rather, rather scary. And um, I know one is the deep fake. Uh, I think another, and I want I want you to talk about that, and we'll we'll if we get a chance, we'll put and show what a deep fake looks like. So the yes, you well, you can go to my and, TikTok. I just had yes. two go viral. <laughs> I, I will put I will put I will put what you put on there. You send me yeah. that, put it on there. I put it on there. But you know the deep fake and what that is is you're able. To, it looks like someone is who they are, who they're presenting, who they're talking, but it's not actually them. I, I look at that, and I look at the use of. AI to reinforce the worst of human characteristics. I believe that's part of the reason why we are also so divided right now is that if you live in a world, you can live in a world that is totally make-believe. It's, it's sunny right now outside, but you know what you see is it'll say, it'll tell you it's raining and you believe that because that's, that's the only thing you're presented with. And when the human brain sees something over and over again, and that's all you're presented with, it becomes fact. Tell people, like, how do we deal in this world of deep fakes and artificial intelligence? And what should we be doing about AI? And why should we not be worried about AI and facial recognition? And if we should be worried, what, what should we do about all this? Like, what do you tell people as the optimistic yes. evangelist? <laughs> that's right. That's right. I definitely, and I, I go, I'm on both sides. I, I'm, I'm a realist, but I'm, I think there's a, like a pragmatic, pragmatic optimist or rational optimist. Um, like I haven't realized, I understand, uh, but I also feel like education and people just understanding how this technology can be used is a huge part of it. So we'll start with deep fakes. Um, deep fakes is definitely, the more I demonstrate it on my social channels, the more people write back, especially people who are not technical. And they're like, that's terrifying that that exists. And so yes. to give you a really interesting, horrifying example, it would be like, you know, we've all remember a certain time where we get like a, an email from the prince in Nigeria, Nigeria, who needs like $7,000, right? And yes. some people in this world sent money to those accounts, right? That, that actually happened and it was just a scam. And now yeah. we try to tell, especially older people, we try to tell them like, no, my gosh, nobody needs that. Nobody is really asking for that money. Please do not send it. That happens. However, with a deep fake, the reason it's so unnerving is that now that voice could come to you on a phone and that phone call could come from your mom yeah. or you like me to my kids because there's so much open audio of Noel. Someone could go and train a model on all the YouTube videos that I've done on all the Instagram lives and Facebook lives that I've done. And they'd be able to create a, a sound that sounds, I was able to build a sound it sounded like a person who had passed away, J. Edgar Hoover. He was an old FBI, head of yeah, FBI. Yeah, yeah, I know J. Edgar Hoover. Yeah, <laughs> and so I created his voice, and all I did was train it. I mean, if you know, we don't have a whole lot of audio of him. It was like yeah. 500 words that he had said, and it picked up the fact that he was from New England because he was wow. like, I'm J. Edgar Hoover. And I was like, that's amazing. And I was saying it was amazing because that was awesome. Right. But it's like I said, it's terrifying because now I can, as a hacker, right, or as somebody who wants to use this power for evil, could create sounds 
that in a business you think is your boss telling you to wire yeah. this money or telling you to release this check. And you wouldn't, because uh, Malcolm Gal uh, Gladwell also said this, we default to truth as a society. It's true. And have to, because that's how we're wired. Otherwise it'd drive us crazy because we yes. wouldn't trust anything. We'll all be paranoid, right? And so, yeah, it's, it's tough. However, let me just present the optimistic side of this story, which is we have the same problem in cyber, cybersecurity, right? And we have red hats and blue hats. We have the attackers and we have the ethical hackers that are defending those attacks. The same thing is true in deep fakes. There are people that are building, and I should say universities, building deep fake detectors today, but there's also things you as an individual can do. Um, so you can now, there's deep fake tests you can take. It'll show you two things and you kind of test out your skills and it'll give you tips. Um, but most importantly, let me just give you a use case. Imagine me, right? I've got all this content of me, all of me talking about my career, my personal life. Imagine 200 years from now, my great, 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 great grandchildren being able to put on a VR headset or put on Bose glasses and be able to see a 3D representation of me and then be able to ask me like, what was it like to get when you got pregnant for the first time or the fourth time? Right. Or what was it like to be married? What was it like to not be married? What was it like to be a single parent? You know, heaven forbid, 200 years from now, we're still having this brown people in tech challenge. Right. And they're like, seriously, how did you continue to deal with things like this? Right. Um, and they could ask and they would hear me authentically answering from the things I've already said about myself. What it requires, though, is that we remove the rose colored tinting of Instagram, right? And like <laughs> the makeup, right? And we're just real so that right. we can use this information as a time capsule in the future. And I think that's a truly authentic and useful use case. But yeah, there's a lot of terrifying things yeah. behind it, too. That, that's awesome. Uh, I, I would say that to add to your point, we can't opt out of technology, we can't stop innovating. That's right. That leads to less opportunities, less results. Yeah. It, it never leads to a good place when in it, when, right. when and it empowers those who are misinformation generators. Right. Exactly. You know? So we can't, yeah. we, can't, we can't do that route. And what we have to do is make sure that we are, is it the blue hats with the blue, the blue hats, yeah. are the, the blue hats are the good ones. The blue hats out, outnumber the red hats and that we have to make sure that as this technology is implemented, we have to, to demand the inclusion. We have to uh, demand an ethical consideration of how these, how these products are done and it's something that we expect. And I do think there will be a revolution and a different, a, a, a differing perspective on how our data should be used and in what method it should be used. And I think that is the beginning of those conversations. But it's not that, no, we can't, we stop AI, we stop facial recognition. That's, first of all, that's also Pollyannish. That's stupid. It's not going to happen. And second, the, we, so we ought to, so, so secondly, we ought to make sure that it's done in a way and guided in a way that is for good. Because if it's not, It'll be done for wrong and evil. Uh, yeah. You know, yeah. And the last thing I wanted to mention about that was just this one concept of explainable AI, um, because black box AI. Again? What's it called again? Explainable, explainable AI. Or AI. Okay. So okay. it's the idea that Facebook has an AI model, and I can't tell why it shows me the newsfeed that it shows me, or why if I have two devices both logged in as me, I get different stuff in my feed. It's a black box to me. I don't know why those decisions are being made, and. Worse, Facebook doesn't even know why those decisions are being mm. made because their network is so big. So what we're now seeing in the industry is a call for explainable models, which means that you have to be able to tell how every decision in a model was made because that's exactly where we go, oh, right here, 
there's this huge amount of bias that says if you're 60% in one direction, and by the way, all those people happen to be black, this is the decision. Right. And if you're you know, 40% in this direction and all those people happen to be white, this is the decision. And then a bunch of decisions get made off of that one false error. Um, and so explainable AI gives us the ability to get visibility to that. So that's just a little hopeful moment uh, in AI that we are looking at disintegrating black boxes and having companies be own up. And it goes back to our policy discussion. We have to require companies to make sure that their AI that they build, we understand every decision that it makes. I think that's part of the role of government, honestly. So that's that, that's my bias there. I think there are some, yep. you have to There's push- There's no way we'll do it unless we get- Yeah, I think there has to be some policy. policy that pushes for full informed consent and transparency. Yep. I think that has to happen. I'm for innovation. I'm for, I'm not against the collection of data. I'm just for making sure we have, that we have informed consent and people know how these decisions are being made because I think we deserve that. I, I, I don't I don't know what the argument around that. And I think that should be the framing of the policy, not being anti-tech, not being against big tech or whatever you call it. We're not against, we're, we're for- Pro-agency of the user. Yes, <laughs> it's yeah. pro-user, pro-transparency. That's what this is about. Final okay. three questions to wrap up. You have a committee okay. of three, uh, living or dead, advising you on life. Who are these three people and why? Oh boy. Um, committee of three. So my dad, um, who is living, so that's great. Um, and he lives here with me, but he's the one who got me into tech. He, uh, not really into tech software wise, but into science fiction, which bred my love for using technology to solve problems. Yeah. And to this day, like he always introduces me to new books that were written in the forties that are phenomenal. <laughs> so, um, so my dad would be one, uh, I suppose, um, Jesus would probably be another one okay, of the gentleman from Nazareth, um, because I totally appreciate in my life now as a change agent, understanding that I can't go back to my hometown, if you will, and preach what I want to preach, like, and talk to them because they see me as the 16 year old girl who couldn't finish high school. And so I really resonate with a lot of the perspectives that he had to take as he had the courage, right, to start saying things that people, most people thought were crazy. And that's kind of what we do now as yeah. people who are in the minority, we're constantly, you know, preaching the good news. But at the same time, um, even the, those closest to us have this systemic understanding of what it's, what we should do and how we should act. Yeah. And it actually feeds the problem. It doesn't create the change. And so Absolutely. having to distance myself from the very people I would have embraced otherwise that's been a challenge. And so Jesus has helped me with that, um, seeing that example. The that's last good, one. That's a good point. That the fact that when the people around you, they literally re rewire your brain if you stay there, which is why you do have to distance yourself from people that are that don't have the same mindset. They don't have to be in the same place, but they need to have a mindset that's aspirational or positive, or otherwise you'll be like them. I think it's a good point. Third point. Go ahead. Third, third person. Um, yeah, I would say, I, I guess I have to say Michelle Obama. It's like Michelle, Oprah, someone like that. But I feel, I just really love the idea of someone who is optimistic, positive, and creating massive change and demonstrating extreme levels of success. Like that's that's who I want to be. And so I want somebody who can speak into my life. Like, you're not alone. You could do this. Keep going. Get out of bed. Get on your Peloton bike. Um, and I feel like, yeah, that, she could do that for me. <laughs> Uh, and it'd be right. nice to be besties with Michelle. Uh, what's an important truth you have that many people disagree with you on? 
Oh, goodness. I would probably, I don't think they would say they disagree, but their actions speak louder than their words. And that's that mindset is everything and that your thoughts become your experience. So my mindset is that what I think about becomes my experience and that I've proven it, you know, I've proven it to myself so many times. I don't even think about it anymore. But so many people say like, yeah, I appreciate that. And then I hear them describe their life in a way that they don't want. Like, that's not the life they want. That's not right. They don't take action towards what they want. They instead relish and wrap themselves up in the blanket of their despair. And um, yeah, so I think that that's probably the biggest thing that people, they say, I'm lucky or I'm blessed or I'm a special, um, but I'm not. The only difference is that I write down what I want. And then I stay laser focused on it until I get it. And I'm willing to wait. Like I've got a lot of success now, but I'm 20 years in the making, right? I'm like a right. 20 year overnight success. It's, it's the difference between, uh, well, first of all, to go back to what you said, uh, to paraphrase it, how my mother says it, she says, you know, uh, what's true in your mind is true in your reality. Similar, similar about your mindset becoming your reality. Um, and when you talk about success, it is a, it's a, it's a journey. And it's a, I think it's, there is this tension between being persistent and wanting and moving towards it, but also having patience during the process. And, 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 and those things I have struggled with because I'm a person that, you know, I write it, uh, I write it down to, or I see the vision in my head and I go. And then when it doesn't go according to how I think it should, and, and it, by the way, never does. Right. Sometimes I get impatient, but you have, I think it's that, that it's that tension because there's a tension you want to be persistent that sometimes that's the opposite of patience and figuring out that balance to life is something I haven't figured out yet and probably yep. won't figure out yet in this uh, podcast. But we can have a lot of conversations. <laughs> yeah. So the final question, you kind of answered this, but if you had a Google billboard ad, a slogan that summarized the, your belief in life, what would that say? Uh, I actually just posted this. I found it. I don't know who said it. I think it was in an, either anonymous or some blogger. Um, but it was work hard in silence and let success be your noise. And I would, and I used to say, let success be your revenge. And I even still think that way, though it's a little dark. And I like rather like <laughs> let success be the sound that you make because so many people have told me you can't do what you're doing. It's not possible. You're not technical enough. You're not whatever. Like they make up the, the boundary in their mind and they project it onto me. And I've always just been like, appreciate your feedback, you know, and I go heads down and I do it. And I never go back to those people and be like, so um, you see what I did here? (laughs) Like, I feel like my success is my best representation of like, yes, I believe what I say and I do what I say. And it shows up in the work that I do um, and in the success that I get. So, yeah. So I think that's probably what my billboard would say. I just posted it like on LinkedIn, I think. yeah, work hard in silence because nobody needs to know how hard I'm working. And, no. you know, we talked about it here. I work twice as hard than my peers or three times or four times as hard sometimes. No one needs to know that. No. Because all I want to know is that what I'm doing, which I feel like will change the world, if I'm successful at that, I actually don't care that I have to work double <laughs> or triple. Yeah. And then Noel Silver, it was an honor to have you on Disruption Now. I definitely want to have you on more in the future. This was a great conversation. Appreciate you. It was awesome. Thanks so much for having me.